Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of A Mic on the Podium with me, Michael Seal. Today, I conduct a conversation with a conductor who also classes himself as a composer and an arranger. He's probably best known for his work conducting film music, working with orchestras all across Southeast Asia, the United States, and his native Australia. He also stars in a superb podcast all about film music. It's a real pleasure to welcome Nicholas Buck. Nick, it's wonderful to meet you. Uh, your name was introduced to me by one of my Patreon subscribers, Jen Winley, and she said, I've just I know Nick really well. You must speak to him and you must listen to his podcast. And I've done now doing both. So it's wonderful to meet you. How are you? <laughs> I'm great, Mike. I'm very excited to be here. I am not an avid listener of your podcast. I think because I've been so busy trying to create one myself. And as you know, it can be uh, extremely time consuming <laughs> and yeah. um, and takes up a lot of editing time and planning time. But I am very excited to be on. I have had a good skim of your previous guests and I am feeling extremely humbled <laughs> um, <laughs> by the list of names that you've interviewed before. Oh, that's very kind of you. We will come to podcasting um, because, as I said, I love your podcast much, much, much later on. But as my listeners know, I always go back to the very beginning and you're listed as being a violinist. And I wonder when you started the violin and whether that was your first instrument and whether you come from a musical family, whether your parents are musicians or have an avid interest in it. I, the, the, when, when I go up my family tree, you have to go to my great grandfather who was a conductor oh, wow. in, the Ukraine, in the Ukrainian army, would you believe? Yeah. Um, my whole family background is Ukrainian and he um, left a whole heap of sheet music that my grandmother had under her house of yeah. arrangements and all kinds of things he used to do. And between him and myself, uh, dare I say, not a musical bone in anyone's body. <laughs> um, my, I actually play my father's violin and yeah. that sounds romantic until you see a picture of him uh, in grade one where there right. were four violins and 30 piano accordions in the orchestra. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> My God, um, what a noise that must have been. I'm not even going to say sound. What a noise that must uh, have been. What a sound it must have been. <laughs> yes. um, he reached grade one and then quit. Yeah. And the violin remained in his father's garage for about 30 or 40 years before it came to me. Yeah. And uh, I was about four years old when I picked up the fiddle. Yeah. And uh, yeah, it's been a love affair with music ever since yeah. I, um, I do play piano as well but violin has always been my my first primary instrument well I was going to say you do play the piano because I know because I've I've heard you play it on your podcast um <laughs> if we go to what you know used to be called in the old days um further and higher education it's listed that you studied composition at the University of Melbourne in Australia when did composing become something that became you know a, an all-consuming passion to you look about year eight or nine really um right. my mother used to say that whenever i practice bark or mozart on the violin that i'd always end up adding extra bits and i'm not talking about cadenzas i'm talking about just like extra little blibs and blobs yeah and i'd always kind of you know be a bit scolded for that but i think there was something in me that wanted to scratch that creative itch yeah and so i was very fortunate in high school to actually receive private composition lessons which is pretty wow. rare for a high school um and it really fueled this this love affair with with writing with creating um and really i mean i i was a massive film buff as a kid you know i really 
probably fell in love with film music through that that kind of passion for for films. Yeah. And you know, from about year eight or nine, I was listening to you know John Barry Bond scores, um, and you know, early sort of seventies John Williams, um, which. As a boy growing up, when you're playing in orchestras, and I was, again, very fortunate to have a high school orchestra, um, and then locally played in the Melbourne Youth Orchestra here in in Melbourne, Australia. Um, You know, these were great sort of mixes of of the romantic composers that you'd you'd learn in those those orchestras or playing fiddle. Um, And to suddenly hear it, you know, personified on on the silver screen was a sort of real eye opening experience for me. Yeah, yeah. And I guess there started my love affair with with film music. Yeah, and, um, but and yeah, always always was sort of yeah classically trained all the way through sort of through high school. And, and was the idea to go into the film music industry was that where you were heading, or were you thinking about writing operas and symphonies and concertos and string quartets? Um, look, a bit of everything. I mean, yeah. I, I yeah, it's sort of a a dream in the back of your mind, I guess. But you know, I just love music, so I'd be happy yeah. to to write it and be involved in any way. You know, yeah. I I became a sort of self taught jazz musician, um, really jazz pianist, um, after studying classical piano, and all of a sudden, you know, that opens up a whole new world of of music. Mm. You know, everything from you know Thelonious Monk, Sinatra. Um, you know, stuff through the 70s and 80s um, and just, you know, f- really kind of worked hand in hand with my traditional classical education, all of a sudden being, you know, learning about jazz harmony and extended chords in a way that wasn't Bach chorale style <laughs> theoretical yeah. knowledge. Yeah. Um, again, went really hand in hand with my compositional brain and I guess... Um, to be honest, I feel like I use more of that theoretical knowledge of jazz uh, than I do, you know, traditional uh, yeah. theory and harmony. Yeah, um, yeah. Which is, yeah, and it's it's a way I think about music when I'm writing it. Yeah. I don't think of, you know, two six five one. I think of, you know, D sus nine sharp eleven, whatever it may be. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, yeah, 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 yeah. Well, you. You go on, and I'm assuming you're learning the violin and studying the violin all the way through, you know, university whilst also studying composition. You go on to do a master's in film and multimedia at New York University, which means we're now, we're now, uh, you know, we're going from a four-lane motorway or highway down into now <laughs> what, what was sort of one lane or maybe one or two lanes. Um, how was that, and and um, the, the change of culture and all of that, and and what what differences as a composer. Were you being taught now? Were you being specifically being taught about how to, you know, fit it to the picture, or what sort of disciplines did you learn? Look, I'll be honest with you and say that most of my experience that I'd had post undergraduate, and I must say that I went back to do a master's about ten years after I finished my composition degree right. as an undergraduate in Melbourne. Um, a lot of the knowledge that I just had by being a working freelance musician was actually more valuable than anything I got in my master's degree. Now that's not putting it down because I think doing a master's gives you a certain focus that really, you know, heightens your, your, um, just, just, it just narrows your focus really. Mm. And, you know, so it got me, um, very used to working with, you know, geeky stuff like samplers, you know, using things like pro tools, logic, 
um, Sibelius, you know, all, all these tools that we have at our disposal. Um, but just got me to really focus on, on using those tools in a creative way. But uh, they're just the practical elements. In, in, I guess in my head, that the knowledge of, of music, of good music, of what works, what doesn't, often just comes from trial and error in a real-world existence. Mm. So, uh, look, I don't know how useful the master's degree was for me as a film composer, um, but it certainly, look, it, it did things which in hindsight were super valuable, and that's getting out of a rut. I was yeah. teaching for many years at some local schools. I was kind of doing the same things as a freelance musician, mm. and all of a sudden, you know, when you move from Australia to America, um, it's a very different existence it's a very different world you know america is a big place uh, new york is a big place and there's often a thing in australia when when you leave the country um that's when you get noticed <laughs> <laughs> and this brings me to my conducting career in that i really you know i was just doing dribs and drabs here and there in australia until i went overseas yeah. <laughs> and all of a sudden boom it sort of exploded yeah, and whether yeah. that's a coincidence or not, I'm not quite sure, but um, it certainly was was a thing. And the last eight years have have been sort of life <laughs> life yeah. changing. Yeah. Um, well, in, it, in it, you've read my mind about my next. The next question was going to be. Well, I was going to preface it with a little sort of you know, how similar our lives sort of are, and the fact that you know you were a, you were a studying composition whilst playing the violin, and then conducting became part of your life. I was a first study violinist and joint first study composer at the Conservatory in Birmingham and then had lessons from Jonathan Delmara and it sort of started something which then, a lot later in my life, became my life. Did you have any lessons whilst you were conducting at, a, at any stage? Because I you know, I can cite Jonathan Delmara as being my first teacher. Uh, who did you seek? Or, or were you one of these people, I remember Chris Seaman saying, I never had a lesson in my life. Well, are you one of these lucky people who did it that way? I am very lucky. Um, I haven't had a conducting lesson in my life. Well, I haven't had a formal lesson. I've, I mean, yeah. I've played in orchestras all my life, and <laughs> exactly, I think, honestly, yeah, yeah. that's that's the greatest lesson is being yeah. a musician and seeing what works. You know, playing under different conductors, you see mm. the great and the the horrible, yeah. and um, you, you know, you get to see and witness firsthand bits of the orchestra being broken down, uh, which is fabulous as a composer because you really see the inner workings. Yeah. Um, but my first professional conducting gig was really on the back of being a composer and arranger. Mm. And it was one of those things where it's like, um, hey, Nick, you know, do you want to write some charts for this cabaret artist? Sure. You know, um, hey, we have a 30-piece orchestra. Do you want to conduct them? Sure. You know, it, it's things like <laughs> yeah. that where... Um, just by chance, you, you get a you know a go at waving your arms in front of these musicians, and um, you know hope that you do an okay job and get asked back for something else. Yeah. Um, and this this really yeah was was a pivotal moment for me because um, straight after that gig, I got asked to basically do some arrangements for one of Australia's I guess sort of biggest pop icons, um, a singer by the name of Tina Arena. And she did a tour with all the Australian symphony orchestras. And of course, they asked me to conduct. And yeah. so I didn't have to do any trial, you know, um, conducting sessions, studying under another conductor. They just went around, did her show, and I got a free gig <laughs> conducting um, every single uh, in orchestra in the country. Um, yeah. 
which is an absolute blessing. And so really was my audition in, mm. in some ways. It, it, it got me that first footing in front of these orchestras. And, um, you know, the rest is kind of, kind of history. <laughs> It's a very similar story to Matt Dunkley, who was way back in the twenties, in episode wise, oh, yeah. who you know spends a lot of time. He said to me, ninety five percent of his time in the studio doing film, TV things, and he said, you know, it's exactly the same. He'd done some arrangements, and somebody said, well, if you want them, you see, we haven't booked a conductor. You'll have to do it, you know. Uh, and yeah. he said it was sort of trial by fire, and you know, uh, uh, the the sort of hands and arms, the technical stuff. I completely agree with you. You know, I spent 22 years as a violinist, and I always say, my you know, my my big teachers have been Jonathan Dunbar, Yorma Panela for a, a brief two or three week period. Um, I've sought advice from Sakura Romo and Andres Nelsons, but frankly, the biggest teacher of all is the people who stood on that podium for 22 years, and the good and the bad. You know, and that's the most important thing. You can practice your hands and arms, but it's learning. You know how to treat an orchestra how not to lose one by saying one bad sentence you know <laughs> uh, anyway, you know you know you know what i mean and that that's they're the things that we gain by playing you know that and that's you know when you stood Absolutely. in front of that that that's the um, 30 piece orchestra for the first time things like that have gone in and they're, they're ingrained you know the hands and arms we yeah. can deal with that you know in the face and all of the rest of it Exactly. And look, I think, you know, being a great conductor is is just being a good musician, really. Yeah. Um, I've seen plenty of amazing conductors who are terrible with their arms. And as a as a fellow conductor, I look at them and go, I actually have no idea what they're doing and what any of it means. But the orchestra makes this beautiful sound. And I'm sure that in rehearsals is, you know, there's there's some musical imparting of knowledge that is beyond physical gestures. Mm. Um, and, you know, it also, it depends what what kind of genre you're in you know i know a lot of you know a lot of music that we perform is as orchestral institutions you know mm. is is historic it's um it's written 100 200 300 years ago and so you know there's there's obviously there's an informed way of playing this stuff and it just needs a person at the front to to shape that vision and it doesn't necessarily have to be with their hands mm. um, whereas you know playing something brand new and contemporary whether it be film or a modern piece of music um, you know it might need a bit more sort of visual direction rather than than musical mm. and that might require a different conductor or it might require a conductor who can straddle, straddle those sort of two kind of um, genres that I've just picked here yeah. and now. No, absolutely um, but, true. Um, I mean, I I often, you know, I'll be sitting there and watching a concert or an old concert on YouTube on the television and, you know, my wife or one of my daughters will walk in and go, what's he doing? You know, I can't understand where the beat <laughs> is or whatever else. And I have to point out to them that, you know, probably an awful lot of what he's doing has got some related somehow to what he said in the rehearsals. And to remember that, you know, 95% of what happens happens in rehearsals and and sometimes you know these people can stand there and be almost indecipherable but it doesn't make the orchestra play any worse in fact often makes them play better because they're doing what they're doing you know um if we all conducted clearly all of the time and you know it, do, it doesn't always work um that, uh, no no yeah yeah <laughs> and look I, you know I, i'm firmly of the opinion that um you know if you're a freelance conductor especially as in you know you don't have your own orchestra that you work with regularly 
um, you know, a lot of the skill set is is also not just gestural. It's you know, it's leadership. It's mm. being you know, coming really. It's coming together with a group of people you've never met before, and within two days, you know, performing um, art at its ideally highest level. And that often requires, and I'm not saying I'm I'm good at it. I think it's it's, but it's something I I think about lots and deeply, is what is the right approach with mm. with these musicians, depending on the music, um, what, you know, what do they need to to basically do their best, um, mm. to not treat it like a sort of egocentric thing that it's all about me, but but really, you know, how can these guys sound sound their best, and how can I help them achieve that that goal. Mm. Um, and then you're out of there in, in three days. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, and look, I'm sure you've had many conductors say that often the first five minutes of, of the first rehearsal is probably the most crucial bit because um, you know they are they're looking at you, they're summing you up, they're making all the judgments that we make when we meet people for the first time. Yeah. And as a conductor, you don't know what kind of day they've had. You, you know, someone may you know suffer terribly from anxiety. Someone may have broken up with their you know boyfriend or girlfriend or um, stubbed their toe in the morning, forgot to pick their kids up, you know, thinking about their shopping <laughs> yeah. list or, or any, yeah. anything in, in, in between. Yeah. Um, and you kind of have to just know that these are humans and, yeah. uh, you know, again, that they do have to have a, you know, they've, they've got a job to do, but they might be having a terrible week and mm. just being cognizant of, of leading them in a good manner, in a nice way that really makes them want to play for you. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so it's kind of a bit therapist, isn't it? Yeah, ways. absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And I think it helps having been a player, the remembering the times you've, you know, you've only just made it because of the traffic on the way in, or as you said, you know, you've had your ear bent by your missus or your husband, uh, on the, you yeah. know, before as over breakfast or whatever. You know, you're yeah. suffering from a mild headache, totally. or whatever it is. You know, it reminds you yeah. when when you're a conductor that you have to, you have to, you know, factor that in. Um, I'm going to ask a question because I don't know the answer. Um. And it's about percentage of your time. We're going to come on to conducting orchestras live to film soon because I know it's something you do a lot of and it's something I'm fascinated by. And, and the one time I did it, I loved. But what percentage of your, you know, take COVID out of the picture, what percentage of your time do you spend doing music live to film or sessions in a studio? Or I know I've seen you do, you know, film concerts where there is no film, that, but you're doing bleeding chunks of scores to you know and presenting it yourself what percentage do you think you spend of your career doing those things look as i mean i kind of have three main musical arms it's it's composing arranging and conducting yeah and conducting probably takes up maybe 60 percent yeah um so the other you know the other 40 percent is is spent in isolation in a room working with notation software or um, audio workstations and, and the such um of the actual conducting Look, I'd say probably seventy percent is is in the live um, live to film world, um, and then the other thirty is really mixed between, um, you know, you know, like you said, just just performing some film music, um, but often, um, and this is where I got my start, is in the what I say in in the pops world, the the straddling of um, you know. A non-orchestral group with with an orchestra. Yes. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. And quite yeah. often, you know, I'm involved in these pro projects as an arranger and then asked to conduct. Um, but it's always something I've been 
utterly, utterly fascinated by um, the mixing of the pop world, and I say pop world in a very broader sense. Mm. You know, it could be electronic, rock, whatever, um, and the orchestral world, because the players and the the um, I guess the viewpoint, even like down to how they rehearse and how they think about rehearsals is so vastly different, mm, um, mm. you know, let alone how they read a stick. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. You know, you often get bands coming in like really early and orchestras seemingly late and you sort of, it's often easier to tell the band, look, just just play behind a bit and you'll yeah. you'll be with the orchestra. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, fusing those two worlds from a personality perspective, I find really fascinating. Um, and just knowing how you know, bands or pop artists or, or, or singers in that world think about music, you know, even practical things like many of them don't read music. Yeah. And yeah. so how, how do we talk about the forms of pieces and, and stuff like that in a way that we can get to an end result? Mm, um, mm. And, and that's something I find very fascinating. So that's, that's another side of, yeah, maybe about 30% of my conducting is in that sphere. Well, I'm nodding and smiling away, dear listener, because it's something I'm doing seemingly more and more of, and I really enjoy, <laughs> mainly with the WDR Funkhouse Orchestra in Cologne, but also I've done a, a project or two with the BBC Concert Orchestra in the UK. And, you know, in my experiences, the last thing I did in Cologne was I had a hip-hop art, uh, artist and a rapper singing along to orchestral <laughs> arrangements of their songs. I, uh, then the project before that was with a a guy who's basically a cabaret singer, a Dutch guy called Sven Ratzka, who had his own trio, and they sat in with the orchestra, and you know, we built a concert of David, David Bowie and Lou Reed and all sorts of things around him. And as you said, it, it's the mixing of the genres, I love that, but it's also the mixing of how they rehearse versus how we rehearse and, and finding a common ground. And, and in the end, yeah. it's to me, it's all just music. You know, some... Some agents would love me to say to you know concentrate on doing Shostakovich, Britain, and and you know uh, forgotten English composers. My argument is I love music, and why can't I conduct a concert of German rap one week, and then Brahms <laughs> one and Brahms four the next week, which is what literally what I've just done. You know, three weeks ago I did German <laughs> rap and hip hop, and now uh, currently I'm doing Brahms one with one orchestra, Brahms four with another. I have no problem with that. But you're right, I love that. You know, when you put artists together who maybe you wouldn't normally see on a stage isn't it exciting it is it is and look you know orchestra orchestral players um they're you know i can generalize here but in my experience they're really coming around to to both film concerts and and these crossover yeah pop pop meets orchestra kind of kind of projects yeah it always at the end of the day it always depends on usually the quality of the arrangements you know mm. you can get the age old complaint of oh we're just playing footballs over and over um, and yes, you may get them, um, uh, you know, but, but fingers crossed, they do get beautiful arrangements to play. Yeah. Um, yeah, like you said, it's often just really, really great, great music. Yeah. Um, and you know, who, who doesn't want to play great music? Exactly. I, one of my old violin teachers um, came up to me after one of these concerts and he said, Nick, when are you going to come back and conduct real music? And uh, you know, I sort of laughed and said, ah, and I think he was, you know, giving me a, a compliment saying, you know, you're, you're better than this kind of thing. But, uh, you know, a few years later, we were doing a similar concert and he came up to me afterwards and said, look, I don't really understand this music, but 
man, what a vibe. You know, yeah. he, he's, <laughs> he's kind of coming around to um, just enjoying these different kind of projects that, that mm. they get to play. Yeah. Um, and, and tastes are changing, you know. I'm, I'm just going to point out to the listener, wonderful cultural difference there. Um, uh, Nick was talking about uh, playing footballs. You know, as a string player, what that means is playing a semi-brief, which is a whole note, just <laughs> one per bar. Uh, and I, I, I sniggered to myself because I'd never heard of that before because in the UK, we call them eggs. You know, we're just playing eggs over, oh, over again. Okay. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I was laughing. Uh, but the point is, I mean, going back to my rap concert recently, you know, a very dear friend of mine, Tim Poitier, did the arrangements of those, of those German rap and hip-hop songs. And he said to me, you know, I just can't avoid in this particular song just putting eggs on the page but others I'll try and make it more interesting I'm going to go dig in a bit more about uh, two things really the guest conducting which is obviously what you do all the time and when you go and do it live to film now We've discussed in the past with Ben Palmer and also way back with Wayne Marshall about the system that as conductors we, we usually use if we're doing something like a Williams score, you know, of which I know you've done more than I think I've ever seen anybody else have done. You've done all the Harry Potters. Have you done all of the Star Wars now? You must have done most of them. Uh, uh, I have, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. And, and loads more besides, including How to Train Your Dragon, which I, you know, I listened to that episode of your podcast the other day, driving to London. I was so jealous. Um, but, <laughs> but what I want to dig into is you've, you know, you've got your own screen in front of you. And if we're using the Newman system, the streamers going across, the li vertical lines going across, you've got time codes, you've got all this sort of stuff. Our orchestra is getting more and more used to let's say the rigidity of it because there is a rigidity it's not totally rigid but there is a rigidity of it compared to let's say a Brahms symphony and uh, sometimes do you encounter orchestras which it takes longer for them to realize that hey actually we've got to follow the conductor here we've got we can't be as loose <laughs> we can't be as loose as we normally are how do you how do you um what have your that. experiences been yeah and how do you navigate that yeah um look I will firstly say that I have changed over the years Right. Um, uh, through just you know uh, doing it lots, yeah. But I was very um, nervous to begin with, and um, very tied to you know the click track when it was available, and it usually yeah. is on most films. Right. Nowadays, however, I would say ninety percent of the films um, I don't use a click track. Right. And I guess the the artistic goal in my head is kind of to make the orchestra feel like they don't even know that I'm following a screen. Yes, yes, um, yes. And look, yeah. you know, that, that comes really from two things. One, preparation and knowing the music. Mm. Um, and two, being able to read the screen in a way that means you can pivot and adapt when you need to in a yes. way that is just ultimately musical. Mm. Um, and look, different composers' music generally lends itself sort of differently. Um, you know, a lot of more modern film scores are very rigid because they're written on grids. You know, right. they put into a sequencer at crotchet equals one forty, and you can just feel it's been you know really mapped to a click track. Yeah. Whereas a lot of the Williams stuff and those more old-fashioned things have that freedom built in because that's how they were recorded exactly and yeah so, he doesn't he doesn't you know, use click does he he you know he's all done looking at the screen 
No. Mm. And, you know, I guess it's just knowing knowing what really needs to hit um, most importantly and then knowing that outside of those moments, um, you know, you can take... You, there are moments of freedom um, yeah. that I would rather give the orchestra um, than have them conform 100% to... You know, an existing performance of of the London Symphony, for example. Yeah. Now, I'm not for a second saying I don't I don't follow the original guides or anything. Like I absolutely do, but mm. um, I just know that I know where the liberties can be taken, and I know where it needs to be right on it. Yeah. And you know, I was I always think of conducting an orchestra to film is kind of like steering the Titanic. In that, <laughs> if you need them to go faster, um, you know, you sort of if you whip up a frenzy with your arms. Um, you know, you can you can overshoot the mark, and they can <laughs> yes, they, yes. they can get the yeah. message, and then start running away. And you've got to kind of got to pull them back. Yeah, you know, yeah. right to starboard, and then the, the ship turns, and then oh wait, iceberg, yeah, left, left, yeah. left, right, 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 right. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it can be like yeah, turning a ship, and that's just something that you I guess get used to, um, hopefully get good at over the years. Mm. And um, it's quite, yeah, to me, that's it, it's the thrilling part of the process is yeah. just trying to conduct a performance that might be slightly different every time, but making the orchestra really feel like they're just playing, they're just playing this great score. Yeah. Um, and then trusting, trusting the conductor that he's in the right spot. <laughs> well, uh, it made me think of, as, as I may have said earlier, I did North by Northwest, which is the only one I've done before, which obviously it was recorded in the 50s. There was no, it wasn't to click. Yeah. But there, if you think about the music, I'm thinking specifically now. There's a scene late on where um, he's approaching the the baddies' lair at the back of um, the big mountain. It's all in three eight, and it, and it by being absolutely rigidly in tempo, you what you're doing is creating suspense because that's what Bernard Herrmann wrote. But then there are other moments, you know, when they're on the train and he first meets um, the lady who he ends up being, I can't remember the character's name, um, uh, who ends up getting together with at the end of the film. Then there's more love music and you can be freer. And as long as you hit the, the places where you need to hit, it's fine. But, you know, there can be some freedom within it. It depends on the nature of the cue, doesn't it? I mean, there was one gunshot in North by Northwest. I had two goes at it. And I did exactly what you just did. Uh, the first time I was too slow, and so I missed it. The second time, you know, three or four hours later, I thought, right, I've got to push, and I pushed way too fast, and I had to do a writ to hit the gunshot and still missed it. Um, and, and, yeah, th that comes with experience, which, you know, it's an experience I'd love to do more of. But, yeah, it's it's all about the music. In the end, again, it's all exactly. about the music. Look, I, I was just in Singapore last week doing Hitchcock's Psycho. Mm. And, I mean, apart from the two murders in the film... There's really not a lot that syncs up with anything. They're just moods. Yeah. Um, yes. it was, it's actually quite incredible how how amazing the music is, but it's just you know, and that's the way obviously Herman scored it, that they're just setting moods. Um, mm. And yeah, you know, and and things kind of line up just almost like by coincidence if if you you sort of ride on it, but it also means that you know there's a little bit of flexibility in there to to make make music, yeah. uh, and by make music I mean you know not having to be absolutely 100% rigid um, mm. about about it all. Now, Urtext, which is a very <laughs> classical period, Baroque period word, uh, German word meaning, you know, going back to the score and what was originally written. Now, obviously with some of the scores that you conduct live to film, some of the effects cannot be there because it, they've, they, you know, it's been put in put in production, you know, either a synth or something's been laid on the top, which you just can't have. Maybe, you know, you're luckily, you, you might have a choir, but a lot of, of the scores 
you know, have choirs and you might not have one. So how much time do you spend trying to make it sound like it does on the film? Because when I've done film music concerts, so not with a film, but just orchestra on stage, I spend a lot of time trying to make it sound exactly as it did so that people would go, oh my God, this you know, this is what I remember. Uh, <laughs> it, it's it's the, the luxury and weird instrument question, really. You know, what do you do when, <laughs> when, when you haven't got that particular Japanese drum or that particular choir? Uh, it's funny because you know a lot of film music we only witness in its singular recording which is like yeah. the film score you know the original yeah. yes you might get the occasional re-recording um, but it's unlike classical music where you can get you know dozens if not hundreds of recordings of, of a particular piece yeah so yeah. you know people are in some ways you think will expect to hear exactly um you know the right sound but to be honest unless they're super soundtrack nerds or geeks um a lot of the time they don't notice you know i've been to yeah. see john williams conduct at the hollywood bowl and you know he's what now 90 years old yeah. um some of his tempos are so slow it's it almost send you to sleep you know <laughs> but indiana jones was ba 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 wow ba ba you know uh, like sort of half speed high school band rehearsal kind of tempo yeah. almost yeah but it didn't matter. Like people just just loved the music and, and felt it. Yeah. And so look, I you know, I will I will go to a certain extent to try and get a, a particular sound because that's that's you know, as a listener, I'm used to that that kind of positioning of the microphones in my in my headphones that mm. they might have used at the session. Um but I'm less specific about instruments that than I am about things like um you know tempos I, i'm a real stickler for tempos personally yeah i think that can make a make or break um the the excitement and the buzz and the just the the mood of a particular original film score mm. um you know sometimes if you do just these you know star wars sometimes people do it really slow and it just feels sort of plodding and and pedestrian um that you know they're, they're things that i will really focus on more so than say you know getting a particular percussion instrument just just right yeah yeah um, but look things like choirs you know you're right in that we often in the live film projects um they're put onto synthesizers and they can be a bit horrible yeah. <laughs> sometimes <laughs> uh yeah. you know I, I did a harry potter six i think the other week and there's this beautiful scene where dumbledore um, dies. Sorry if anyone's you've had enough time <laughs> to know the spoiler. <laughs> um, yeah. And there's literally an a cappella choir, you know. And when you're conducting a guy on a keyboard pressing buttons, it's just not quite the same, no, you no. know. And maybe the audience forgives us because they're looking at the screen and they're sort of deep in the emotion. Um, but sometimes those things are a bit of a, a shame, you know. Yeah, it'd be great yeah. if we had the luxury of a of a real choir. And sometimes, sometimes we do. Um, yes, you know, I mean, but, there's but nothing quite. Yeah, nothing yeah. quite like I've done the duel of the fates with a choir. You know, rather than just putting the brass chords in as as is the the Aussie in the score. Day. Yeah, it is night and day, and to, and to have them there for that, and also the the big battle at the end of episode three to have the choir there, even though they're only ooing and ahhing, it's still yeah, yeah it's still. Uh, you know it's 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 night and day it's funny yeah. you were talking about geeks it made me it's the perfect link into your podcast um but that you know there are certain fans forums uh that where they've talked about oh, this yeah. a john williams fans forum that they will give you i've read reviews of my concerts over in the uk oh, where, they, where they give you you know a score out of five 
I remember oh, the, the, making the heinous crime, and I did it until very recently. I always did it, of cutting out the last four bars of Hedwig's theme. You know, there's that false <laughs> ending at the end of Hedwig's theme. Yes. I always, I always yep. hated it, so I just cut it out. <laughs> and somebody somebody ranted and raved on, a web, on the fans' forum about it. And then, you know, I saw Williams conduct the Berlin Phil recently, and he did them. I thought, okay, I better put them back in. So I've now, I've now <laughs> reinstated them. But yeah, they get very geeky. And and that leads me onto your podcast, which is called The Art of the Score. You have two other co-hosts, Andrew Pogson and Dan Golding. As I said, because I, I knew I was going to interview you, I started listening to your podcast. There are 30-odd episodes. I've already listened to 19 of them on various journeys oh, wow. and also late at night. And I'm, I'm picking – I'm not doing them in order. I'm picking my way through favourite films that I know, and then I'll go into those. That's the idea. Ones. Yep. Yeah. Um, I love it. Reason being is it's oh, a perfect you. mix of geekiness but also informative you know sometimes you will go back to the bare basics of mu of musical notation for a, a listener who doesn't read music yeah. but what also comes across is the three of you have an incredible rapport um and you you all seem to be as geeky as each other about various subjects but all of you about film music so how <laughs> how did it start whose idea was it um and how did the three of you get together have you known each other for years uh, no um it was andrew's right. idea and he knew myself through his association with the melbourne symphony who i would sometimes conduct he, he mm. used to work there um and he also knew a fellow called dan golding who was like a lecturer in video games um right. at a university here in melbourne and he sort of thought we were both kind of equally nerdy about <laughs> film music as he was and he thought look you know, this is what, 2016, 17 podcasts were really becoming a big thing then. He said, let's let's just record an episode and see what happens. Yeah. And yeah, we all kind of got along really well, you know, in our laconic Australian way, you know, it's a bit of sort of shit throwing at each other. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. And like you said, we have kind of different, you know, Andrew is, um, I think he has a master's in jazz, you know, on the saxophone. And so he's a real jazz head, but also understands orchestras from their like administrative kind of programming side of things, right. um, which is a very interesting angle. Um, you know, I'm I'm sort of, um, you know, got the conducting side and composing side. And Dan, who also writes music, um, has a much more sort of historical, um, I mean, he just knows everything about the history of video games and film and, and, and music. So he's yeah. a real encyclopedia. Yeah. And throwing them together... Um, seemed to just be a great mix. So like you said, we just picked films we loved and um, shame, shamely, we, it's been over a year since we recorded our last episode um, and people are, are gagging for more. However, we, we actually tried doing one live with an orchestra. Oh, so wow. We, and we just did it on the music of John Williams um, a few months ago here in Melbourne. So I was conducting, but Dan and Andrew were sort of hosting and yeah. all the kind of breaking down and dissecting of things and some of the silliness and the the jokes and the geekiness we tried doing live with an orchestra on stage as our guinea pigs. Um, yeah. And it worked great. We had a choir there um, so we could do Duel the Fates and yeah. some of those wonderful moments. Um, and also, you know, breaking down how he builds, builds his orchestrations or uses harmony to create, you know, feelings of romantic um, moods and things like that yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. well so it's uh, been been a real fun joy I, I can I can totally and utterly recommend it you know I'm as somebody who makes a podcast 
um, and uh, who didn't listen to one before I made my own um, at all, really. I've got into podcasts <laughs> since. And, you know, it, sometimes it can take me a couple of episodes before I decide whether I'm going to invest time and energy in it. It took me about five minutes of yours. I thought, oh, I think I'm going to really enjoy this. But it helps <laughs> also that I, I spend a lot of my time conducting film music in concert. So, you know, I understand the genre, but you've taught me lots and lots of things I didn't know. Um, and so I can heartily recommend it to anybody. Really, I can. Um, go and have a listen. It's called The Art of the Score. I'll put a link in the underneath uh, in the show notes, dear listeners, and then you can you can go and go and listen to them. They're, they're, it's very funny at times, and but also very informative. So, um, yeah, brilliant. Um, I have one more question. It's the eleventh question, Nick, and it's about score study. And I'm 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 going to really geek out and let's concentrate on you know i saw on your twitter feed a little video of you unboxing or unenveloping the score for williams is the last jedi which which is huge so you you know you've got loads and loads of, i think it was in two parts even when you it's, get a it's new the score, longest film score yeah. i've ever conducted actually wow in, in one film yeah. yeah i think it's 133 minutes or something ridiculous <laughs> wow that's amazing so if you've got 133 minutes how do you go about learning that? Um, what's your process? Do you use a piano? I mean, do you obviously you go back and listen to the the soundtrack either on the film or the separate soundtrack as it's released? And for the geeks, and this is equally geek in this podcast for conductors, <laughs> are you a scribbler in of things? Do you use red, blue, and black? I mean, for me, <laughs> when when I did uh, North by Northwest. I drew little boxes with uh, which I highlighted in yellow pencil, so I could see a script cue from you know I didn't have to look at the screen; I could hear it coming out. So well, at least I've lined up with that script. Anything you particularly do for those scores? Look, I'm I keep it really simple. I have two colours: red and blue. Um, red are my tempos, and you know it's a very simple system where I will basically just put a red box around. Anything describing a tempo, it could be a rail, it could be a tempo marking. And then I use um, simple numbers to tell me what those kind of tempo adjustments are. So yeah. if we go from crotchet equals 120 to 140, I'll just write plus 20 next to that red box. Yeah. Because think about you know, when you're flying through re reams of paper and you get to a new tempo, often it's like... Oh no, what was I just at? <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> you know, absolutely. Yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, this says 160. Was I at 165 or 140? Yeah. You know, yeah. Um, yeah. so little things like that are very helpful. Um, and then blue is, I don't want to say the shape of the music, but it's its really key things that um, I'm a very visual conductor. And I, what I mean by that is I, I like looking at players often and, yeah. and cueing. And I know that sounds like, well, isn't that the job? Um, you'd be surprised how many conductors don't look at their musicians or well, especially with Car new music, ha have Karen their heads in the score. Yeah, carrying out his <laughs> eyes shut for his entire career. <laughs> you know. uh, yeah, who's he curing? Who knows? Yeah. Um, a lot of the time, you know, you have to think that these 133 minutes are also going to be brand new music for the players. Yeah. So they really, they, they need my help. <laughs> help me, Obi-Wan Kenobi. Yeah. Um, so a lot of the time it's, you know, just marking in 
key moments of the music that I really have to kind of cue along the way just to kind of keep it on the rails. What are important bits? And often they are important musical moments, but they can often be, you know, things like a percussion entry where someone has been, you know, looking back 70 bars of, of not playing. You know, mm-hmm. I know they'd love a, a little cue from from Nick at the front. <laughs> yes. Um, so they're just, they're simple kind of musical and practical things like that. Mm. Um, I certainly don't, you know, mark... Um, you know, I'm not marking, oh God, like, you know, structures or, or things like that. I think that just is something I just like to cram in my brain, kind of mm. like cramming for, a, you know, your finals exams at, in, in high school. Um, a lot of these scores get, get ingested so quickly in such a, a large amount that um, it just sort of all fits in my head. And then, you know, the next day, boom, it's sort of forgotten about in some ways until I have yeah. to do it again. So I really like that sort of hyper plane of focus, just putting all this info into my brain and keeping my scores relatively un, uncluttered. Yeah, which um, means then the that, red and blue pop out off the page at you um, if, yeah. there, if there's not too much of it. I mean, and that list- works for me. Yeah, you know. the listeners will know I'm a red, blue and black person and I do write quite a lot of things in my scores and it helps me learn it. But again, the use of the colours is because it pops off the page. You know, every, all scores are in black and white. And then if you get a, you see a red marking, it means something. Um, I try not to put yep. too much on a page. But of course, if you're doing something in, you know, the end, let's say the last five pages of The Right of Spring, it's it's covered in red. Uh, so, you yeah. know, that, that that's bound to be the case. But yeah, it, uh, it makes sense. And especially when you've got so much music, if you overfill a score like that and you've got as you know, 133 minutes, you'd be there for months of your life doing that exactly you know and i've seen look some conductor scores which have you know crazy highlighters you know fluorescent tabs all the way down the side of the score um you know pianissimos you know circled with you know exclamation points and big you know words quiet or shush um you know it works differently for different people um yeah. but like you said i i just like a simple a simple approach into to shove it in, into my brain and absorb it in the weeks leading up to to the to a performance dear listener please don't reach for that little button that advances this episode on by 30 seconds just because you know i'm about to talk about patreon because over recent months my patreon page has expanded and you may be interested to know how the supporters club of this podcast is developing there's over 25 hours of interviews with musicians composers soloists and managers as well as 23 bonus mini episodes that accompany this podcast I've written an article on score marking, a set of diaries from my trips guest conducting abroad, I've started a series of articles on the art of programming, and recently posted an article about a very interesting way of remembering your metronome markings. Did you know that you can even have conducting lessons from myself? All of this is available at patreon.com forward slash a mic on the podium. And from just £5 a month, you can gain access to this ever-growing resource on conductors and conducting. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com. Details and links to the page are in the show notes attached to this episode. Now, the all-important 10 questions with my guest, Nicholas Buck. Nick, it's time for the 10 questions. And I always start with, what sound or noise do you love and what sound or noise do you hate? I'm going to keep it musical. Um, My favourite sound, my favourite musical sound is many many horns in unison like <laughs> let's say six six or more yeah. um there's just something about that that is 
oh, it's it makes makes the horn my favorite instrument. I don't play any brass, but I, I just feel like the sound of six, eight horns all playing the same thing, uh, just incredibly moving. Whether it's pianissimo or huge fortissimo, it's um, it's nothing else quite like it. I agree. Um, and look, as for the sound I hate, um, it is two violins in unison. I think that is <laughs> the worst sound you can possibly hear. Uh, for, for many reasons. I am a violinist. And it's just something I read also in an orchestration book once, and it's always been true. Um, whether I'm arranging or just listening, two violins in unison, it'll just never... It'll just never be right. Mm. Um, something about the way the strings vibrate or beat, it's just a horrible, horrible sound, <laughs> in my I, opinion. And I, I agree with you. And, and I mean, there's a famous, I'm going to slightly change the instrument, but there's a famous solo in, I think it's the slow movement of Tchaikovsky's first piano concerto for two cellos. And hardly Probably ever, yeah. yeah, hardly ever do yeah. I ever hear it done with two cellos, normally only one. But whenever I've seen two <laughs> violins in a score, I'll either make it one or three. Three works, yeah. two never <laughs> yeah. does. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. I agree with and you. And octaves um, are fine. Octaves yeah, are fine. Yeah, but, absolutely. Um, unison. Yeah. In unison. Oh, God, <laughs> no. Yeah, yeah, my skin's crawling. <laughs> I, <laughs> I, um, Sorry. I, I completely agree. Number three is, if you had 24 hours free, what would you spend it doing? I got my first car when I was 15, and it's a 1956 Red Morris Minor convertible, um, which I still have to this day and hardly ever drive it. Um, it lives up at my parents' farm here in Melbourne. But to me, the perfect day would be hopping in that guy and just driving through the countryside, maybe visiting some wineries, um, dinner at a restaurant, whether it's you know somewhere here in Melbourne in the Mornington Peninsula or um, wherever in the world. Just just something about escaping in an old vintage car um, without music, especially if it's a convertible. Just hearing the wind flap over my ears is um, something so liberating and something I miss. <laughs> there are answers to this question where I you know I nod and smile politely, but. You know, I think to myself, well, I'd never go on a jog or, or I'd never go and visit a museum on a day off. Uh, I was nodding and smiling this time because I thought, oh, this just sounds like a wonderful day. This sounds great. Um, so, yeah, that sounds superb. I mean, I might choose a different car because my dream would be to own, and anybody who's listened to Zachary Oromo's episode, um, would my dream would be to own a Citroen DS from the, you know, the first okay. ones from the fifties, you know, the, the one with the weird steering wheel and the, all yeah. of the hydraulics um, suspension, but either way, what a wonderful. But Mike, does, does your Citroen have a La Cucaracha horn? Because <laughs> <laughs> my Morris does. <laughs> so that's about uh, the only music I'll hear. <laughs> well, if I ever get a Citroen DS, that's a decision I'll have to make. <laughs> you will. <laughs> That's six um, horns, not quite in unison. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> yeah, indeed. Um, the next question uh, is, who would be your favourite conductor or conductors of yesteryear? Look, I think my answer is is probably the ones that I've found so charming to watch. Yeah. Um, and and a, lot, a lot of this is not even in my lifetime. You know, it'd be on YouTube and whatnot. And that would either be um, Carlos Kleiber or yeah. Leonard Bernstein. Yeah. Um, uh, did I say Bernstein? Bernstein. Uh, Bernstein, Bernstein. I always get the Leonards and the uh, Elmers uh, mixed up. 
I think um, it's it's Leonard Bernstein and Elba Bernstein. I think that's it's the that one. way around. Yeah. So maybe I said it right. <laughs> um, yeah, they're sort of effortless charm and just they're conductors that you can really see the musicality pouring out of them. Mm. Um, you know, and often quite sometimes quite dramatic, but often quite minimal. And just seeing the facial expressions and hearing the sound, um, I find utterly captivating watching those two. Well, when I started this podcast, I bet myself in my own head that the answer to that question that would be the most would be Carlos Kleiber. And I've won that bet a hundredfold because <laughs> he comes up every, two out of every three episodes. Oh, no, no, no. What to me, it shows that we all, you know, all of us conductors think that he was a great, if not the There's got to be something there. Yeah, yeah. But Bernstein was also high on the list of people I thought people would choose. And he hasn't appeared that often at all. Many of the American, uh, our American colleagues have have cited him, mainly because he was the first, you know, American-born great American conductor. But I, I was expecting him to appear more often than he hasn't. So thank you for bringing him back. Um, you know, Pleasure. again, it, very interesting to watch. Uh, whatever you think of his interpretations at times, but very interesting to watch. Um, I wonder whether your answer to the question five, which some people find much more difficult, uh, would also be <laughs> interesting to watch. And who would be your favourite current conductor or conductors? Look, um to be honest, my answer is going to be a fellow that you've mentioned today on this podcast, and that's um, uh, my mate Ben Palmer. Yeah. Um, I met Ben a few years ago, and he's just the. Oh, you probably know this. He's just the nicest guy. Yeah. First of all, um, but I think so many of his um, approaches align with mine that I just uh, I find him a real captivating um, musician. And I think he's he's going to do fantastically. I think he's got an amazing career ahead of him. Um, I love his yeah. I love his approach, his mindset. Um, and look, you know, I've never seen him live. I've seen videos of him, and um, it's you know there are there are great things there in, in just in his his visual style. You know, there's a there's a sort of reserved clarity that explodes when it needs to, and is just utterly clear and concise when it needs to be at the same time. And um, yeah, I, I think he's he's definitely a guy, a guy to watch. Well, you got me thinking of the fact that, you know, I've now had over 110 answers to that question. <laughs> Famously, one person refused to answer it, but I've had over 110 <laughs> answers to that question. Uh, it's the first time I can guarantee, I think, that the your answer will actually listen to you giving that answer because I know he's a oh, avid okay. listener to the podcast. So um, <laughs> there we are, Ben. Uh, I know he'll be listening. What is the hardest work you've ever conducted? I am going to go back to a time in 2018. Um, it was in Tokyo, Japan. And I'm not sure how they got this program across the line, but I had to do all three original Star Wars films in one day. Oh, my God. So we're talking episodes <laughs> four, five, and six um, yeah. together with about an hour to an hour and a half break between each one. And look, you know, I mean, the music's gargantuan. It's 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 huge. We all know it. Uh, the problem is the films get longer and harder um, musically as, as they go along. And so as your fatigue sets in, um, 
you know, let alone just the physicality of standing there. Um, it really was the hardest day of conducting I've done in my life. Yeah. So, and I, look, it's I can't imagine it being repeated many other places because I think the union rules of most most orchestras wouldn't allow it. Definitely not in Australia, America, and probably not Europe. Mm. Um, but there's a very strong work ethic in Japan, and they got it across the line. Uh, what was incredible was that they sold tickets to um, the audience for like the day. So so people yeah. didn't come along and see one film. They were like marathon tickets. Um, so the audience was like along for the ride, like, you know, like a ring cycle or something. Yeah. And so I think you could kind of feel them behind you. Um, but I really have to give props to the principal trumpet who played the entire day with no with no bumper or subbing oh, out. It was, wow. it was quite, quite incredible. That's some um, going. Some of the strings rotated. I think the principal horn might have sort of, you know, um, subbed out for one of the films. But that principal trumpeter, oh boy, uh, yeah. what, a, what a what a legend. And of course, we went out, you know, drinking um, at the Japanese bars afterwards and he was, you know, um, holding his beer up like, like a medallion. <laughs> he was very he was proud of himself. He was probably yeah. bathing his lips to calm them down after doing that. That's, <laughs> that's some going. I mean, I'm not surprised at the principal horn. I mean, how many times do they have to play the, the force theme on their own? And there's only oh, yeah, so many times God. you can play that without splitting it probably in a day. Yeah, um, yeah, exactly. So I'm not surprised. My first trumpet, my God, that's... That's a feat of stamina. And also, you know, let's go back to you answering the question. It's a feat of stamina. <laughs> you. you know, I'm, I'm just thinking, you know, what is it? Three quarters of the way through the Return of the Jedi. It's a, a queue I've conducted from the suite, the forest battle. You know, yeah. that's that's pretty hardcore, especially if you've, yeah. you've already done two and a half or two and three quarters of the, the films already. Blimey. And look, Act 2 of Return of the Jedi, I think, has about 62 minutes straight. You do kind of the first two cues and then literally every cue runs into the other without stopping. So, um, you know, there's literally not a not a second to just stop waving your arms for just over an hour. Yeah. Um, and like, like you know, it's pretty intense music cutting between, you know, yeah, the, the the forest endor to all the stuff with the emperor, um, but it, you know it's 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 an exercise in um, adrenaline. <laughs> well, I'm I'm jealous because I a I'd have bought a marathon ticket and sat and watched it all, but b I think I'd love to have a go at that, and um, I think that would be a an list, awesome Mike, experience. Yeah, list. absolutely. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, having said that, I did do Il Tritico twice in a day and did a youth orchestra rehearsal beforehand of, of an hour oh, and a boy. half. Oh, you know, so that was that was getting on for ten or eleven hours conducting in a day. Uh, and I w I've never been so tired in my life. But you know, the next morning you wake up and think, "Wow, what a day!" Uh, yeah, in the middle of it, I would imagine somewhere in the middle of Empire Strikes Back, you you started to regret that you were doing that. <laughs> yeah, and like my breaks is like, do I sleep or have coffee? What's going to be yeah. more useful to me in an hour? You know, yeah, yeah. <laughs> or food. Number seven. And you do this a lot because, you know, you not only do you work in Australia, you work in the Southeast Asia, Japan, Europe as well, and the US. When you travel abroad to conduct, what item could you not leave home without? I'm going to hold it up to you, Mike. It's this little bad boy. This is called a Theragun, and it's basically one of those little portable massage guns. Um, it's tiny, it fits in my carry-on luggage, and it is my saviour because, <laughs> as we all know, conductors get... Um, back pain, shoulder pain. Um, there's never enough time to sort of stretch. Um, so I find that really just a fantastic little device that, that always travels with me. Um, whether you just at interval or before a show or in your hotel the next day, just having a, 
you know, a little um, rubber thing just pound my shoulders for 10 minutes is, uh, is worth its weight in gold. <laughs> We've just bought one, a slightly bigger one that looks more like a gun, um, you know, okay, yep. uh, and mainly because my wife's bad back and I, I've got a terrible Achilles tendons. And, uh, and yeah, I, I, I can see why you would do that. I really can. It's the first time anybody's given that answer and it's a brilliant answer. Um, yeah, we need something. I mean, actually, I have to tell you uh, on the record, because it can't be off the record because it's a podcast, my back is better now than it was when I was a violinist um, because I can move a lot freer than I ever could sitting for wow. five or six hours playing the, especially second yeah. violin parts, which are like digging graves at times. So, you yeah, know, I mean, look, yeah. we have standing desks. That's the job of the conductor, you know. Yeah, we yeah. probably have better backs than um, an upper body strength than than a lot of musicians who are sitting. Yeah, uh, yeah, but I'm, I've noticed my legs are worse, but my upper body's fine. Okay. It's my, my, my legs are struggling. So, um, yeah, brilliant answer. What is the one thing you would change about being a conductor? Uh, withholding tax. No, no, no. Um, <laughs> <laughs> look, I would... I'd say the thing I'd change is not necessarily specific to conductors, but maybe specific to freelance musicians. Yeah. And that's the the constant sense of needing to, to sort of hustle or find the next gig. Um, mm. I mean, look, you know, working and doing a good job is, you know, of course, you know, paramount to any profession. Um, and it's certainly not something I take for granted. But I feel like being a freelance conductor is a bit like being an actor mm. in that, you know, you're, you're measured by your past work. Uh, but there's also every chance that, you know, you could wake up one day and be irrelevant despite mm. your talent. Mm. Um, and, and maybe that's the, the freelance lifestyle of, of many professions, but it really feels that um, it, it's a constant source of... I wouldn't say fear, but it's something that is always on on the mind. You know, mm. um, I love music. I love I love doing it, and I'm certainly very thankful that I'm able to do this for a living. Um, but I don't have my own orchestra. I don't have a tenured position. I'm not on contract. I'm not on salary anywhere. So, um, you know, there is there is always this chance that maybe I'll wake up and my you know my services will no longer be required by anyone um, mm. hopefully that's not the case and hopefully i'd like to think i was i would do a good enough job to to get hired again mm. um but it is it is something that is just i think inherent in in this particular profession which you know can be lonely it can be tiring with with traveling um i know these are sort of first world problems in some in some views but this is a podcast mainly um that conductors will listen to us so i'm sure they're nodding their heads going yeah, yeah. it can be lonely it can be um, tiring and yeah that, that is something that I, I, I do think about and I sort of mm. kind of wish that I didn't have to I think you know unless you're a music director in three continents um, uh, or, or you know you have as you called a tenure position or a title position with an orchestra I think all of us I'm in the same boat as you you know you uh, you have an agent who does a lot of that for you uh, ringing people up, you know, out of the blue and saying, would you like to book Nick to come and conduct your film music concerts or Mike to come and conduct your Shostakovich symphonies or whatever, or your family <laughs> concerts or whatever it is. But we have to do some of that work ourselves. We have to do networking. We have to, you know, speak to chief executives when we turn up to an orchestra for the first time and we have to do all of that sort of stuff. And 
And yeah, that sort of selling yourself thing, which I don't think I'm particularly good at. I'm quite shy, a shy person. Like I, in that I, regard, I hate you know? it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and yeah. some people are very good at it. Some people are terrible at it, but they do it and it's horrible yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. because they're kind of a bit shameless about it. Um, but yeah, I, I do know what you mean. It's... Yeah. Um, yeah, that's that's look. That's that's part of the job, you know. I mean, yeah. there's a reason some of the greatest conductors conductors are very charismatic, uh, mm. because it's it's also a leadership position. Um, mm. And I'm sure internally a lot of conductors are very charismatic, but internally possibly quite um, anxious and 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 shy people, and and they kind of have to turn on the charisma, and probably that duality, you know, fights fights against their their internal soul in some ways. I'm, mm. I'm getting a bit deep here, but... Um, <laughs> no, it's good. You know, deep there's good. There's, imp- there's imposter syndrome. There's all these yeah. kind of things that, that we think um, that we think about. Yeah. Um, not just as, as conductors, but as, as humans. Mm. That's very true. Yeah. And, and conducting is, you know, you're in charge of a lot. You're in charge of, you know, the, the, the combined... Um, talent of you know 60 to 80 musicians which far surpasses yours um, and you've got these big institutions you know behind them that are that are paying you that are expecting something good that have their reputation that you sort of have to uphold mm. um it's it's sort of a lot <laughs> riding yeah. on your shoulders yeah i I, um, I agree i'm nodding and agreeing number nine what profession other than your own would you like to attempt i i really would love to be an architect um, and I think it's sort of like, you know, it's a great saying, talking about music is like dancing about architecture. Um, I, one of my best friends is an architect, but I just love, I love shapes and forms. Um, and I think it would scratch a creative itch that I have, but in a completely different way. Um, it's kind of like being a composer, really. You know, you're providing the blueprint that someone else then executes. Um, and you're really sort of, you might be consulted, but, at the end of the day, it's 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 your vision through someone else's lens. You know, the builders of the conductors, mm. um, and the architects of the composers. And I get a lot of satisfaction in seeing beautiful houses, beautiful buildings. Um, that I think it would be um, in like a parallel life to my to my current one. It would be a really fun thing to be. I'm nodding and smiling uh, because the listeners, any regular listeners will know that I gave exactly the same answer in episode 50 when I was oh, interviewed <laughs> for this podcast. Yeah. And and since then, I've mentioned if anybody else has said architect, and I think a couple of people have, that actually it's a similarity between what we do in architecture anyway and the fact that we are looking at the bigger picture. We are looking at the shapes. We're looking at the beauty. We're looking at the aesthetics of it. But we also have to look at the where the wiring goes. And we also have to look at where, <laughs> and, and, you know, go in on the minutiae. You have to look at a Boeing. You have to look at where a woodwind section needs to breathe in a corral. Yeah. All of these the tiny minutiae. Yeah, what sticks that uh, somebody's going to use for the timpani or whatever. Yeah. The practicalities. And so it is a very similar job in that regard. I mean, you know, that's the metaphor I can put on the top of it. But I'm nodding away because yeah, it, your answer was almost exactly word for word what I gave. You know, And yeah, it's... It's something I, you know, I wished I'd done um, to a degree. So, yeah, brilliant answer. Finally, and it's always my favourite question, not because it's the final one, but because of the question. If the world were to end tonight, what would be your choice of final meal and drink? Look, if I'm allowed to fly somewhere, um, yeah, of course I, you would, are. I would love to have a night, um, and I've only done it once in my life, um, at a restaurant in Denmark, in Copenhagen, called Noma. Yes, which um, is 
to this day, the best culinary experience I've had. It was, you know, 26 dishes of, you know, just random uh, foraged foods. I think there were like two meat dishes out of 26. It was incredible. Everything was made by a different chef. And just the the worldliness of their approach to food was was so amazing and holistic and beautiful that I would love to experience that again because I really felt mm. like it was um, just the best thing I've ever eaten. Um, <laughs> you know, some matching wines would be nice as yeah. well. I certainly won't say no to that. Um, but just having these wonderful chefs come to the table, tell me about the food that they've just made, um, 20, you know, 26 dishes, 26 different chefs. I mean, what's what what more is there to love? It, it was a wonderful experience and I, I, would, I would die in a heartbeat after that. <laughs> If I can do it again. <laughs> well, I've said I've been jealous of you uh, earlier in this podcast about, you know, how to train your dragon and doing three episodes of Star Wars in a day. I'm jealous again because it's a, ve- a very famous <laughs> restaurant uh, in the, you know, Michelin guides and all of that. Uh, it sounds amazing. Whenever I've seen video footage of it, it looks amazing. Um, and yeah, what a way to go out. Absolutely. Um, <laughs> what a way to go out. Thank you for coming on the podcast. It's been one of those rare occasions where I've listened to your voice for hours now, listening to your podcast. You and Josh Weilerstein are the two people who you know I've heard over and over again, and it's been wonderful to put a voice and the face together. I've had a great hour or so, and I hope one day we can chat again, hopefully over a glass of wine or a beer, and, and actually chat live. But thank you for coming on, Nick. It's been great. My pleasure, Mike. Thanks for having me. It's um, yeah, it's been really nice, nice chatting with you about all things conducting. And uh, thank you for being uh, an avid listener of Isle of the Score as well. We uh, we we will get back in the saddle. I promise. People <laughs> will murder us if we don't deliver our promised <laughs> Lord of the Rings trilogy nine episode mammoth. <laughs> which we, oh God, it's, I'm tired just thinking about preparing it, but um, it has yeah. to be done. <laughs> I look forward to it very much. Thank you. Cheers. A Mic on the Podium was devised and produced by Michael Seal with music by Ben Dawson. Next time, I chat with a Finnish conductor who started conducting at a very early age. She won the Yorma Panel of Conductors Competition in 2003 and is currently the Chief Conductor of the Iceland Symphony Orchestra. But until then, bye-bye. <laughs> <laughs>